0: That song? At all? It's a jimbe. A jimbe. We got a talented guy right here, Ryan, who plays drums in jimbe. Thank you, Ryan. And I uh, love that, that new sound we've got going on. So, anybody of you know, any of you know how to play jimbe? eBay. eBay. Okay. <laughs> Not exactly the same, but it makes a different kind of sound. Kachin, ching ka-ching, because it takes your money. <laughs> All right, so we're in Mark chapter 11 this week as we move through the Gospel of Mark chapter 11, looking at verses 20 through 25. So if you want to open your Bibles, you can turn there. If you're using one of those blue Bibles, page 847 will bring you to the Gospel of Mark and locate you where we are in the text. Last week we were... Talking about the temple, and I made reference to the Western Wall. This is a picture of the Western Wall. I told you you might want to go look it up. Also called the Wailing Wall, this is where uh, you'll see the Dome of the Rock right there to the left, which is a holy Muslim shrine. But that wall, where all those people are gathered, is the remnants of the surrounding of the Temple Mount. Acted, I think, as a retaining wall and And this is all that's left after the temple was destroyed. And this is where people gather, especially Jews, but even visitors from all over the world. And they come and they pray at that wall. They wail. They cry out at that wall, hoping one day that the temple will be rebuilt. So I thought I'd just show that to you because I have a a quick story to introduce our text this morning about the wall. A journalist was assigned to the Jerusalem Bureau of his newspaper, And so he gets an apartment overlooking the Wailing Wall, which is this thing right here. After several weeks, he realizes that whenever he looks at the wall, he sees an old Jewish man praying vigorously, which is typical. The journalist wondered whether there was a publishable story here. So he goes down to the wall, he introduces himself, and he says, You come every day to the wall. What are you praying for? The old man replies, What am I praying for? In the morning I pray for world peace. Then I pray for the brotherhood of man. I go home, have a glass of tea, and I come back to the wall to pray for the eradication of illness and disease from the earth. Sounds pretty good. The journalist is taken by the old man's sincerity and persistence. You mean, he says, you have been coming to the wall to pray every day for these things? The old man nodded. How long have you been coming to the wall to pray for these things? The old man becomes reflective and then replies. How long? Maybe 20, 25 years. The amazed journalist finally asked, How does it feel to come and pray every day for over 20 years for these things? How does it feel? The old man replies, It feels like I'm talking to a wall. Well, beloved, that got more laughter than I expected, actually. You guys are in a good mood this morning. Ah, That's sometimes how Christians feel in their prayer walk with God. They can feel like they're praying to a wall, like their prayers are just bouncing off and not going up into God's ears. So this morning, we're going to look at that regarding prayer and, and maybe why that happens, Let's look at Mark chapter 11, verses 20 through 25. You can just follow along as I read the text. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Verse 21. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, your trespasses. So we have a lot to cover this morning in that amount of text. On the inside of your bulletins, if you're new with us, on the left side is an outline that you can use to follow along. Where we're going this morning is we're going to consider two conditions from this text that are crucial to exercising effective prayer. So that our prayer life will not be like that diligent and consistent man praying at that Western Wall. We will not be praying to a wall, but we will be praying to the God of the universe and he will hear our prayers and they will be effective. That's what we hope to accomplish this morning. Two points. The first one is we must have full faith in God. And the second one is, and you will probably find it to be a little difficult, we must pray with full forgiveness of others. So, we'll look to explore that and find those points in the text. Before we do that, let's talk about the context. What's going on around the text? What's the story behind this? Well, if you've been with us or if you haven't, some of this will be a way of reminder. In our text today, it is Tuesday morning. It is Tuesday morning in the last week of Jesus' life on earth before He will be crucified on Friday. He is returning now in the morning early to the temple in Jerusalem, having left the city the night before. On Monday, we see that in chapter 11, verse 19. When he gets to the city on Tuesday, he will be questioned and challenged by the religious authorities for his activities primarily that happened in the temple. And you remember from last week and the week before, his casting people out of the temple, his overturning tables, his basically actions in the temple and taking authority and cleansing the temple of the defilement that had taken place. And of course, the temple authorities are upset and want some answers. So we'll look at that next week. But while on the way to Jerusalem, to the temple, they passed by the fig tree that Jesus had cursed on Monday, the previous day, when they were taking the same route to Jerusalem. And just to remind you, here's what he said to the tree. Chapter 11, verse 14 of Mark. He said, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now, We talked about all of that and we're not going to review what that was all about, what it meant, what the significance of it was. But today, Peter now is stomping to call attention to the shocking condition of that tree. So it's one day later. The day before on Monday, it was full of leaves. The text says in leaf. It was vibrant. It was alive. But now on Tuesday, it has withered away to the roots. In other words, the tree that was totally alive on Monday was thoroughly dead on Tuesday. Beloved, if you don't know anything about trees, that's not normal. Okay? They do die, but not usually that quick. To the sound of surprise at what happened to the tree, Jesus now responds by taking the opportunity to teach his disciples about what is necessary to have or exercise effective prayer. That's where we're going this morning. So, that brings us to the first point. We must pray with full faith in God. Full faith in God. Look back at the text. Chapter 11, verse 22. And remember the context. Remember that Jesus is responding to their shock and surprise at the power of Jesus' words when He cursed this tree. And so how does Jesus respond to them? He says, Have faith in in God. Have faith in God. Now, beloved, note that Jesus did not say have faith in yourself. He did not say that. He did not say have faith in your faith. He did not say that. He did not say have faith in your earnest and heartfelt prayer. So even if it was, a, hey, I really prayed. It was deep from my heart. He doesn't say to have faith in that. He simply says, have faith in God. One of the most important things for praying disciples of Jesus is to have ongoing faith in God. Why is it ongoing? Well, you see that word have, have faith in God? In the original language, it's in the present imperative. And that probably means absolutely nothing to most of you, and that's okay. Let me tell you what that means for us in the English. It means that this event is not something that takes place in the past one time, but it is an event that starts and continues in the future. In other words, we are to have faith and continue to have faith in God in regard to our prayer life. Now, this was really kind of a soft rebuke. A soft rebuke. There was no need for the disciples to be surprised by the rapid death of the tree if they understood that the source of power behind Jesus' words was God. It was God. What is it, beloved, for the One who from nothing created the universe and all that is in it in six days to bring to nothing a tree in one day? It's nothing. It's no big deal for God. It's no problem. The outcome should not have been shocking at all. They shouldn't have been surprised. For instance, as an example, if I were to walk by a house and I saw Billy Bob out there with his single hammer and I asked him what he was doing and he told me, I'm going to level the house and I came back the next day and there was nothing left, I would have a reason to be surprised, right? That's just not normal. But if I knew that he brought in heavy equipment during the day, wrecking balls and whatever those things are called for, I don't know, I just forgot all of a sudden, it left my mind. These things that destroy things the things guys really like, if he brought all that stuff in, then of course it's no surprise that he could level the house in one day. He had heavy equipment. God is our heavy equipment, beloved. He is our heavy equipment. He does it with what we can't possibly ever accomplish on our own. And so Jesus is just saying, guys, really? Have faith in God. It is a faith that is rooted or anchored In God alone, it is not, beloved, a faith in our faith or a faith in our prayers or even a faith in our spoken word that will keep us from, and it's understanding this, that will keep us now from distorting the following teaching that Jesus gives to help explain what He means by have faith in God and to help them understand the awesomeness of God and their need to fully believe and rest in His power to accomplish the unthinkable and the impossible. We need to understand that. Remember in context, have faith in God. Now he says, chapter 11, look back at the text, verse 23. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Wow. Now, if we pull this verse out of its context, which I have warned you about many, many times, people do this, Bible teachers, if that's what you want to call them, do that or we neglect to consider any other Bible verse regarding prayer, if we only focus on this one and pull it out of its context, then it might appear that Jesus is saying that we have the power through what we say to bring about anything as long as we really believe it will happen. And in fact... This passage is used as something we call a proof text, which simply means this. I go to this text, I rip it out of the Bible, and I go, this proves what I've just told you. Okay, now sometimes if you're interpreting the passage correctly, then it's a good proof text. But if you're just using it to prove your point and ripping it out of your context, then it is a bad use of God's word. This particular text, and this is the reason I'm bringing this up this morning in Mark 11, 23 and 24, is a proof text that's used within the Word of Faith movement to support the very idea that I can speak, believe, and create my own reality. The Word of Faith movement, popularized by multiple TV pastors who continue to thrive through the consistent appeal for money, to their TV audience, teach this, beloved. It's faith. They teach about faith. And what they teach about faith is that it's a force. It's a force. It's Almost like a Star Wars kind of thing. And our words are containers of the force. And by speaking those words in faith... We can alter and change our reality and destiny. We can even control the weather. We can even speak wealth into existence based on the idea that if you really believe what you're saying or confessing, you will absolutely receive it. Now, this is sometimes referred to in their circles as positive confession. I make a confession with my mouth that is positive Believing it to be true and I will receive it. Others call it name it and claim it. Others call it blab and grab. But that's usually the other side who doesn't like this type of (laughs) theology. Now, listen to me. A lot of people have been taken by this because they just don't know any better. They just don't know any better. These people are very convincing. They can be. There's a website called gotquestions.org. Gotquestions.org. It's a great website. It I don't know how many questions they've answered now, but it's one of these sites where you can type in any question about Christianity, religion, and they will spit back an answer that is biblically rooted. I'm not sure. I've never tested the whole thing, so I can't endorse it 100%, but everything I've looked at so far is pretty good. On their website, if you type in the Word of Faith movement, they have this, Is the Word of Faith movement biblical? And here's part of what they say. At the heart of the Word of Faith movement is the belief in the force of faith. It is believed words can be used to manipulate the faith force and thus actually create what they believe Scripture promises, health and wealth. Laws supposedly governing the faith force are said to operate, this is key, independently of God's sovereign will and that God Himself is subject to these laws. There is this, I don't have it up here, I forgot to bring it, but there is this DVD that I, I would recommend. It's called A Call for Discernment by Justin Peters. A Call for Discernment by Justin Peters. I'm going to show you just a few clips this morning. And he addresses the Word of Faith movement and all of its popular people. And a lot of these people you, you know because they're on TBN. They're on the religious broadcast networks. They're on television, regularly recruiting money out of people's pockets. This is part of their theology. And I want to just focus on this positive confession this morning and show you I am not making this up. I wish I was. I wish this was not the case. But it is. And let me read to you one more time Mark 11:24, 24. And when I read it, remember it, and listen for their reference to it, which they won't make directly, but they'll make indirectly as they're justifying what they're doing. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Okay. So here's the first video. Hopefully. First, the power. They carry created. Where is my wallet? I left it in the back. I want to get started right now because it is empty because I am married and I want to speak. I'm going to overcome that in the name of Jesus. If only that were true, brother. Right? Fat wallets we'd be walking around with. Okay. How about the weather? Check this one out. That, that, I won't charge you extra. Oh, she won't charge you extra for that is what she said. Okay, so in 2005, and this is the point that the author of that video makes, Justin Peters. In, in 2005, Hurricane Katrina killed 1,836 people and produced $81 billion in property damage. Where were you, Gloria and Kenneth Copeland? Where were you? If I can speak health into my body, then why don't these, quote, anointed people go to the hospital where people's loved ones are wasting away from various diseases and speak health into their bodies? Why don't they do that? Why don't they go to the poor and needy and speak to their billfolds? Because it's a lie, beloved. So what was Jesus communicating? What was this really all about? It certainly is not about this faith force and our ability to call upon God to serve us as we exercise our faith force and call upon whatever it is we desire, whether it be having tornadoes move around or our wallets get full or our, our bodies somehow heal. It's not that. Jesus is teaching that, or, or let me ask this, was he teaching that we can name it and claim it and get whatever we want? No. Or another question might be, do we lack health or wealth because we haven't tapped into some secret that Jesus wanted his disciples to know a few days before he was going to the cross to be crucified? Is that what's going on? That's the text, that's the context you know what, I'm about to get killed. I want to make sure you guys know how to have perfect health and be wealthy and control the weather. So let me give you some advice on prayer. No. If that was what Jesus was teaching His disciples, they missed it. They must have missed the message because history tells us that they suffered greatly for their association with and proclamation of Christ. And they never, ever had a chance in their lives of being or showing up on the show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Do you remember that? It was an old 80s, 90s show. Do you guys remember, some of you? This is Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. It was whatever his name was, Leech or something. He'd always finish the dumb show with Champagne Wishes and Caviar Dreams. And they would just show you all how wonderful people's lives are, the rich and famous, and how you don't have any of it. And you'd be like, oh, that's great. These, The apostles, the disciples of Jesus Christ, Never had a chance of being on that show. I guess they, they missed what Jesus was saying. He wanted them healthy and wealthy and famous and, and just full of life in, in this kind of way. They missed the message, obviously. Now, they didn't miss anything because that's not what Jesus was communicating. And I think what Jesus was communicating is really simple, but people complicated or they try to make it mean more than Jesus ever intended it to mean. To begin with, beloved, as we look at the text, Jesus used a form of speech. We've talked about this before. It's called hyperbole. Hyperbole. It's a deliberate and obvious exaggeration used for emphasis or effect. For instance, if I say I have a million things to do today, what does that tell you? I have a lot to do. Does it mean I literally have a million things to do? If my wife says it, I tend to believe it. But if I say it, It is certainly not true in the literal sense. It is the same kind of language and style of language that Jesus used in Mark 9.47 when He said, and if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. That was a message I did on the intolerance for sin. So did Jesus mean literally tear out your eye if it's causing you to sin? No. But He wanted you to understand how serious sin was. How radical your behavior should be towards sin in your life. Hyperbole. Mark 11, 23, look back at the text. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Important. Remember the context, beloved. Peter was surprised by the complete death of a tree that Jesus cursed only 24 hours ago. And so Jesus is saying, that is really nothing. For even what might seem entirely impossible, like telling that mountain, that immovable object, to pick itself up and be thrown into the sea, it is possible. Even something like that, something impossible, improbable, it is possible. You think the tree was a big deal? That ain't nothing. You forget the source of my power. Have faith in God. If you do not doubt God, but have full confidence in His power, then you can see the unimaginable happen too. Have full faith in God. Do not doubt in your heart. Not your faith. Not the sincerity of your prayer. Do not doubt in your heart what God can do. His power. His ability. One writer says it this way. The statement of Jesus is a picture of what, of that which is utterly impossible with men, yet can be accomplished through faith in the power of God. Have faith in God. Now, beloved, in the days ahead for Jesus' disciples, after His death, they would be challenged in ways that they had not yet Experience in their lives. And they would need to rely upon God in prayer in a way that they never needed to before. They would have to fully trust in His power to help remove or overcome the insurmountable difficulties that these men would face as they made their profession of Jesus Christ known. And Jesus is saying, your heart need not doubt God in the request request that you make because He is able and ready to do all things, even something as unbelievable as removing a mountain and casting it into the sea, the impossible hyperbole. As long as these requests are in agreement with His sovereign will, Now, this is interesting because it doesn't say anything about that in the text. But that would have been understood by Jesus' disciples in the first century. They knew you didn't have to tell them that when you prayed to God, if it wasn't according to His will, it was not going to happen. They knew that already. But for modern day contemporary readers, they have either forgotten that, they do not know about it, or they are ignoring that truth. That is the caveat. That is the connection every time. You better believe it. God can do and will do anything, the impossible, having faith in Him. And we can count on it. We can take it to the bank if our request be according to His will. Listen, these words are awesome, but if we remove them from the greater context of Scripture and what it teaches us about God... And his sovereign plan and his will and how we communicate with him, then this passage becomes perverted and twisted and we can use it to support false teaching, which I just showed you. Like faith is a force and I can operate it independently of God's will or that God's will is to do my will when I exercise my faith force. You're just standing there waiting. You know, Jeremy, I would like to help people, but because you have not asked and you have not believed, I my hands are tied. So it's just not going to happen. I would like to make you rich, Jeremy. But because you have not asked and you do not believe, your wallet is empty. Listen. Ask yourself these questions, just as an example. Why does Paul say to the church in Ephesus right before he leaves them, he's, getting, he's going away, this is a church that he planted, he's going to have to go do some other business, and he says this, I will return to you again, if God wills. Acts 18.21 Why does he say to the Christians in Rome, in chapter 1, verse 10, that he was asking in his prayers that somehow, By God's will, he might succeed in coming to see them. Why do that, Paul? Why not just believe? Name it and claim it. Right? Why not do that? And it will be yours. Why do you continue to qualify your prayers with it having to be God's will? Why? Because God does not answer to us or act as some cosmic genie eagerly waiting to fulfill our commands. But beloved, you can take it to the bank. He will accomplish what we ask of Him in faith if it is according to His will, no matter how impossible our request might seem to us and to others. That is the truth you need to take away from this passage. Just to give you a real world example of that, we have been praying for my mother-in-law forever. That she would come to a place where she would be saved. And if you knew my mother-in-law, then you would know that seemed quite impossible. Something has recently happened where in her home now, she has a Bible. She meets with my wife and another lady every week for Bible study. She is memorizing Bible passages. She has put the Bible on her iPad in three or four different forms. This is, to me, it was an impossibility. Praying, believing, hoping, trusting. Beloved, you know what else seems impossible in our lives Sometimes our sin, and overcoming it. You think it's God's will for you to be able to walk away from your sin, to say no to your sin? I'm going to tell you right now, in case you don't know, it absolutely is. And so you can go to God in absolute faith, without doubting, trusting He can remove what seems unmovable in your life. And you can overcome sin in your life through Not my power, please. Through His power alone. Just a few examples. And then when you consider 1 John 5, 14-15, maybe this will make some sense. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that is God, that if we ask anything according to His will, if we ask anything according to His will, you know what? He hears us. And then John says, and we know that what he hears, sorry, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, whatever we ask what? According to his will, right? Context. If I just took verse 15 and ripped it out and said, listen, it says right there, whatever I ask, whatever I ask, I'm going to have. No, look at verse 14. Whatever I ask according to His will, then He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. We know it. We know it. And that is exactly what Jesus says in chapter 11, verse 24 of Mark. Look back at the text. Therefore, I tell you, based on what I just said, I'm explaining this to you, Jesus, is saying whatever you ask in prayer... Believe that you have received it and it will be yours. In other words, believing in the power of God when you ask for something according to God's will, beloved, it should place you in the mindset that it is already a done deal. It's a done deal. Since nothing can resist or overcome the sovereign will of God, that beloved is unleashed upon this world as God's People pray with faith, trusting in God's power to do the most amazing things. Okay. I'm running out of steam. I can feel it. I had a lot to cover, so I'm talking really fast. But listen, because of these truths, it has been rightly said that the work of prayer is really the process of aligning our wills with God's will. Aligning our wills with God's will so that we will have what we ask. Why? Because we will ask to have what God wills to give. And then you can have absolute confidence and faith that it will be yours. So if we want to exercise effective prayer, beloved, we must have or pray with full faith in God. And here's a really Fun one for us this morning. We must pray with full forgiveness of others. Now, before I go on with this point, let me just say this. It is important for us to continually recall and remember that we are completely dependent upon God's grace to do anything that Christ has asked us to do. If I think I'm going to accomplish this in my power, please, I'm going to fail. I'm not going to pray effectively. I'm going to end up praying to a wall in a sense. But by God's grace, I can do this. I can have faith in Him alone. I can remove the doubt, believing in God and His supernatural power. I can, through His grace, begin to understand and know His will so that my prayers are done according to His will. And beloved, by His grace, I can pray with full forgiveness of others. Look back at the text, Mark 11.25, and says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. That's a little odd, actually, if you just read that. You can keep that up there for a second when you just think about that passage. What? We're talking about prayer and stuff. All of a sudden, why you got to go throw forgiveness in this thing? Got to mess it all up. I mean, I can do the faith thing, I think. Uh, I'm not sure. And why are you attaching forgiveness to the Father's forgiveness? Jesus? Why do you complicate things like that? But actually, it's very simple. That's what makes it so hard. It's so clear. But it doesn't mean it's easy to follow. When we bring our prayers before God, and Jesus mentions them standing, that's just because that was the common way for the men, the women to stand. They would stand and pray, but it was not the only way. So there's not something magical in our posture when we pray. He was just speaking to them in terms they would understand. There is something we must do though when we come before the Lord and pray. Let's just break it down. What is it? Yeah, it's right there, right? And wherever you stand praying, forgive. Forgive what and who? Come on. Forgive what and who? It, it's got to be some limitations on this. Oh. Anything against Anyone. Forgive anything you have against anyone. In other words, who has hurt you or done something to you that has caused you to hold a grudge or to feel bitterness or resentment toward them. Oh boy, I don't know. I don't know. Well, how about this? It might be good for us to ask what that word forgive in the original language means. What are the, what are the means that can be applied to that? Maybe there's something there. Uh, maybe a loophole we can get out of this. Okay, so... Guess what it means? Dismiss. Dismiss. The original word there, forgive, it can mean dismiss. Now, you know this word because in a court case, when the judge says, I'm done, I'm not going to hear the facts of the case, it is dismissed. What that means is, they don't even qualify for me to hear. Take your business out of my courtroom. I don't want to hear it. Think about that. I dismiss. So, We'll go through a few more just for fun. Leave behind. Abandon. Send away. Let go. Let's try this here. Let's see. When we come before the Lord in prayer, we must dismiss... Anything we have against anyone. We must leave behind anything we have against anyone. We must abandon anything we have against anyone. We must send away anything we have against anyone. We must let go of anything we have against anyone. We must forgive. We must forgive. And the definition of our English word that we use, forgive, the reason it is the word that they translated here for the text, it makes sense because here's our definition. It means to stop being angry about or resenting somebody or somebody's behavior, to excuse to excuse or overlook somebody for a mistake, a misunderstanding, a wrongdoing, or inappropriate behavior. Guess what else we use the word forgive for? Financial debts. Right? So we say... If we forgive someone of their debt, it means that they no longer owe us anything, regardless of how small or large. Correct? Guess what? Jesus uses a story about forgiveness and refers to this very idea of forgiving someone their debt. So let's quickly read it. Quickly read it. It's in Matthew 18. That's the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, Matthew 18. You can flip back to the left. It's just one book left of Mark. And we're just going to read it. And I'm just going to let you see it for yourself. And it is in the context of forgiveness. That's important that Jesus tells this story. We're not going to make a lot of comments on it. I just want you to hear the Word of God. Let it reach your heart. Then Peter, verse 21 of chapter 18 of Matthew, came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter thought, that's a good number. Jesus is going to go, wow, you would do it seven times, Peter. You are a rock star. But Jesus is always messing people up in a good way. He says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. That's an expression for an unlimited number. And then he tells the story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Let me just say that that number is a number that cannot ever be repaid. It's a, it's a magnificent, huge, gigantic number. Billions and billions. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Verse 27, And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. He released him. You're free. I do not hold this thing against you any longer. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So the the picture here is something very insignificant was owed to this man as opposed to what he owed and was forgiven of. But now he's going to find someone who owes him a very small amount. And he says, And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe! So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. Sounds familiar? He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Paul instructed the church in Ephesians 4:32 to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Just as God in Christ forgave you, just as God forgave you of an immeasurable debt, you also forgive one another for the minor debt that they owe you for the offense against you. He goes on in Ephesians 5, 2 and says we must walk in love, right? This is what we talk about. In the Christian church, we are to walk in love with one another. We are to love one another. And he goes on to describe love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. In the translation we use here in the church, it goes like this. It is not irritable or resentful. Meaning love is not irritable or resentful. But I like the NIV's translation here. It's a little more helpful. Love is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It keeps no record of wrongs, beloved. What do we do? On 11.10. Right? Ten years ago. Women are better at this, we admit. It's a joke, guys. It's a joke. (laughs) They have a better memory. If we could remember, we would do it too. But we're like, I can't remember. I can't remember anything. She's got me again. We keep a record. That's not love. I have seen an unwillingness to forgive, destroy marriages, beloved. Wreck them. And I have seen the same unwillingness to forgive, wreak havoc in the church among brothers and sisters in Christ that are supposed to be walking in love with one another. But guess what? In our text today, An unwillingness to forgive will make for us an ineffective prayer life according to the text. In other words, why is He telling us that we need to do this? Why is He attaching it to prayer? We can pray all day and all night and even pray in full faith, but if we approach God in prayer who forgave us all of our sins in Jesus Christ while at the same time Holding grudges against those who have done something to us, then in essence, we are no different than that man for twenty-five years approaching that wall. We're praying to a wall. Why? What Jesus, what connection does forgiveness have with prayer? I don't get it. Look back at the text, Mark eleven, twenty-five. He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive, forgive. Then He defines it, if you have anything against anyone. That's what I mean. Anything against anyone. Why? So that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, beloved, this is is hard to even deal with. But we should be careful to note, this cannot mean that Jesus is making reference to the Father's eternal forgiveness for believers that they have through Jesus' death and resurrection that secures their salvation once and for all. It cannot mean that. If it does mean that, then what Jesus is saying here is our salvation is linked directly to our forgiveness. In other words, if we have any unforgiveness, then we are unsaved. Well, man, that's, that's ebb and flow. We could save, not save, save, not save. And then it would be an ability of my own to get my way into heaven. Oh, the reason I'm here is because I have such a forgiving spirit. Unlike Bob over there who couldn't forgive me for what I did to him ten years ago, that's why he's suffering in hell. That's not, that's not going to be the case. I'm going to be in heaven because of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness I have through him as he was punished on the cross for all of my sins, including unforgiveness. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have current possession, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we read it earlier in Ephesians 4.32. It speaks of God's forgiveness as a present reality for Christians. Paul says, We have been justified before God if we have trusted in Christ. Or as He forgave us in Christ. It's a present reality. We have forgiveness if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. So what is Jesus talking about then? And let me just add one more thing, because I love to talk. The reality is, is that when you come to Christ, that's when you really start to realize all the unforgiveness you have pent up inside. So it can't possibly mean that. Otherwise, I would never be able to be saved. Because it is the reality of the Spirit in my life as I read the Word of God that I start to come to grips with wow, I do have resentment. I do have bitterness. I do hold grudges against Him or her or them. And Lord begins to work in your life, begins to help you release it, throw it away, cast it off, abandon it, dismiss it, forgive. So, what is Jesus saying? Well, we have this acronym when we tell people or try to help people know how to pray. It's called AX, And so we just use the first letter from, in the Word. So AX begins with A. So adoration. So I'm praying to God. How do I do it? All right, adoration. I tell God how awesome He is. Okay? Something like that. C, confession. I confess my sins before my holy God. Right? Why do I do that? Because He is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. First John 1. 9. So I'm confessing that sin. I have the promise of forgiveness because of Jesus Christ, but it is my responsibility I continue to just confess that sin before God. T, thanksgiving. I give God thanks for all the incredible things He's doing in my life and in His world. And the final one is S. It means supplication. That just means asking for things I want. You know how we pray? We go right to S. We might get a little adoration there. God, you're good. All right, now I have a list. And confession? <laughs> nah, I don't need to do that. Right? Right? So the reality is, no, we do need to do that. We are continually confessing before God our sin because we as Christians continue to struggle in this body, in this world with sin. By struggle, I mean a real fight. We're fighting through the power of the Spirit. So we need to continually ask for God's forgiveness which results in, according to 1 John 1.9, a cleansing away of the filth of sin in our lives. This is not bringing salvation to us. We have that in Jesus Christ. But this is an ongoing cleansing of the defilement of the filth of sin that we pick up by living in this sinful world and in these bodies that are still corrupted by our own old sinful habits. This process is called progressive sanctification. It's an ongoing work that God does. And part of that work is coming to God and saying, I confess, which simply means I agree with You, God. This is vile. This is wicked. This is ugly. And I don't want it in my life. I want to see it like You see it. It doesn't belong. I want to put it off, abandon it, and I want to walk in the opposite direction in repentance and truth and life. But beloved, if we refuse to forgive others and at the same time expect the forgiveness from God that cleanses us from that stain of sin, from that filthiness... Then we are acting no different than the wicked servant that I just read about in Matthew 18. And if you remember, he, God, or the master in there, did not treat the servant favorably. He did not treat him favorably for his attitude of unforgiveness towards others. If you and I refuse to forgive, then we, in a sense, remain dirty or defiled by our sins. Our daily sins because we have forfeited God's forgiveness in our daily lives. And therefore, we should have no expectation that God has his ears open for our request. Now, don't confuse mercy with obedience. Because I'm sure someone will say, listen, Jeremy, I've been holding a grudge for a long time. And I pray to God and God has answered my prayers. Awesome. Okay, great. God is merciful. It's true. And even in our disobedience, God works through that garbage. Does that mean it's cool that we should just continue to go on not forgiving? When very clearly here it says, you want to pray to God? You want to have an effective prayer life? When you stand praying, forgive anything, anyone, of what they have done to you. Forgive. And then your Father in Heaven will forgive you your trespasses. Why wouldn't I want to do that, beloved? And you know the reality is this is not a hard thing. In the sense that it's hard for us, but it's not a hard taskmaster thing. Do this. Do this. You forgive and you're gonna you're gonna hate every minute of it. So God He tells us He tells us He loves do you remember He loves us? He loves us children, He says, You gotta forgive, man, because you don't forgive Then you're still kind of walking around your filth and your sin. You've got that bitterness that eats you up like a cancer inside. Forgive. Then go to God clean in prayer. Then in boldness and confidence. One writer says, Faith and forgiveness go hand in hand in successful prayer. If we will not forgive others, God does not forgive us. And when we refuse his forgiveness in this way, he refuses our request. Listen, I don't know about you, but I don't want to pray to a wall. I don't want my prayers to be ineffective. What about you? Let's pray. Father God, do as we ask every week, we humbly come before You as the Holy and Righteous One. We ask that You would accomplish Your work in the hearts of Your people through the hearing of Your Word as Your Spirit that dwells within applies it and gives us the power to obey it. Father, I would hope this morning that that we would do business with You. That, Father, even right now in our heart of hearts, we would find the power from You to fully release bitterness and resentment and grudges that we have held and that are destroying us and putting us in a bad place when we come before You in prayer. Father, help us to to know how to pray and to know Your will as we examine Your Word where Your will has been revealed to us. Father, help us to dive in deep so that we would know how to pray according to Your will. And then once we know it, help us to have absolute faith in it, Father. Not doubting You and Your power and Your ability to do things in our lives we could never accomplish. The unimaginable, the impossible, seeing You at work in our lives and in in Your world. Father, help us. We are a weak people. We are pathetic apart from You. So, Father, fill Your people with Your power. Help us get serious about our sin. Help us put it away, that we may come to You cleansed, ready to offer up our request, request according to Your will, ready to believe them with all of our heart and see You do great things. In Jesus' name, Amen.